0: We'll hear argument first this morning in Case 12-126, McGuigan v. Perkins. Mr. Birch?
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We're not dealing here with the situation where a prisoner is trying to gather new evidence. EDPA has a tolling rule to take care of that problem. We're also not dealing with anything that prevents a petitioner from filing, because that's the problem you solved in Holland. What we have here is the question of when a petitioner must file his Federal habeas petition, when he has the evidence and there are no barriers to filing. And 2244 D1D addresses that exact question, it says, within one year. Now Mr. Perkins asks for a fairly dramatic expansion of Holland. What he wants is equitable abrogation with no diligence, no uh, fault, or any other factor. And our primary position is that you should simply apply the plain language of 2244. Mr. Birch,
2: I thought that, that um, Perkins, didn't he say that um, that he, you could take into account, I'm looking for the brief, you could take into account delay as a factor in whether his actual innocence gateway should be heard.
1: Well, he he does say that, and we read that as a concession that sometimes if you wait too long, that can actually trump a claim of actual innocence. And so, at a minimum, our alternative position is that you have to act with diligence. That's
3: not quite what he's saying. We've had a miscarriage of justice exception for as long as there's been a habeas statute, we've applied it repeatedly. Um, It's not that it trumps it, but that it puts into doubt. The evidence you're claiming proves your actual innocence. It's not the sort of situation where as reasonable uh, as due diligence will do, which is to override even an actually innocent
1: person. Well, we, we think
3: um, in- What he says is it really puts into question the validity of your claim.
1: Justice Sotomayor, it it represents the same kind of principle. You've got to act quickly or adverse consequences can happen. But what diligence does that his rule doesn't do is it recognizes this compelling countervailing state interest in having notice and an opportunity to investigate evidence as soon as it's discovered. And the problem here, we, we don't have any issue at all if it takes 10, 15, 100 years to find new evidence. But once he has that evidence, the burden is on him to come forward so that the state has the opportunity. To investigate. It's
4: a small point and doesn't go to the general issues you have to discuss with us, but just on the small point, he gets, I forget exactly the detail, he gets an affidavit that uh, Jones did it um, within a year. He has one. Yes. Now, if I were the person, I'd say, you know, this one might not work. Maybe I can get two, and then he gets the second, which makes a certain amount of sense to me, although substantial period of time elapses, and the same thing happens with the third. It makes sense to me that the prisoner might try to wait for the third. How how does that factor into your diligence, assuming we get there?
1: Yes. uh, Justice Kennedy, there's a very simple solution to that problem. If he gets close to the end of his year and he thinks that that next affidavit might be just around the corner, but he doesn't have it yet — all he has to do is file a protective habeas petition with the district court, ask for a stay, and say, "I'm still diligently pursuing what I think is going to be another affidavit." And if he can't find that next affidavit, you litigate it on the merits. And if he does, then he amends his petition, and, and then you hear it. I'm not quite.
4: Excuse me. I, I'm not quite sure that wouldn't mean that you have a whole raft of of petition protective decisions waiting on the shelves in the district court. That that, that causes well, its own congestion problems in the district court,
1: it seems to me. T- two thoughts on that. Um, first, we already see this in the exhaustion area. There are petitioners who are concerned that, notwithstanding statutory tolling, Pursuing state remedies, that while they're monkeying around in state court, they might somehow be time barred from bringing their federal claim. So we see this all the time in the Sixth Circuit, uh, you know, in Michigan in particular, that someone will file their petition and ask for a stay while they exhaust state remedies. So, you know, the the pile really isn't going to be any different than it is right now. But the key difference between that scenario and the scenario that Perkins proposes is that when you have him file something, the state's on notice and they have an opportunity to investigate. Now, here we have his last affidavit uh, from the dry cleaning kirk, and it's 10 years old. So, even if Michigan could find that person, there's no way for us to meaningfully cross examine her and investigate what she really knew or didn't know when she wrote that affidavit 10 years ago. And so, with the file and stay, you preserve all of the rights, but yet you give the state the countervailing interest that the statute was meant to protect. And, what and I do want
2: to. What would it take to show diligence? And didn't he say that he tried to get a lawyer uh, several times and was unsuccessful?
1: Um, Sure, and and that's a very practical question that I'd like to address. Um, Most of the habeas petitioners don't have lawyers, um, but filing the habeas petition itself is not something that takes great difficulty. Um, Every district court on their website has a place where you click for forms. In the Eastern District of Michigan, when you click that, the very first two entries are habeas petitions for uh, federal prisoners and state prisoners. And it's a relatively simple form. You check some boxes, say when your conviction was, and you write your claim. and then. Every Federal District Court in the country has full-time pro se staff attorneys who go through these pro se petitions. And if there's a legitimate claim there, then they can work that up for the judge if necessary and and the State will respond. I had some
5: difficulty understanding what the Sixth Circuit was doing. Maybe you can help me with that. The District Court, as I understand it, said to the petitioner, you lose for two reasons. First, you don't really have evidence of actual innocence, not enough anyway. And second — and I can understand that because the evidence — the most that is suggested by the affidavits is that Jones was a participant in this murder, not that Perkins was not responsible for the murder. But anyway, so you lose for two reasons. First, you don't really have evidence of actual innocence. Second, you weren't diligent. The Sixth Circuit grants a certificate of appealability only on the issue of diligence. And they say diligence doesn't make any difference. Well. Where does that leave the petitioner? He's already lost on the question of whether there's evidence of actual innocence, and there was no appeal on that issue.
1: But we're very confused about that, too. They do say, in their opinion, um, that the case is remanded to the district court to determine whether he's got evidence of actual innocence. Now, as you just pointed out, Judge Bell and the district court already made that determination. So maybe they're contemplating an evidentiary hearing or some further investigation. But it is curious because well, — Well, that may be what they're contemplating, but they can't get to the issue of whether the district
5: court adequately addressed the issue of adequate innocence uh, — of actual innocence unless that issue is before them. And the issue isn't supposed to be before them unless, isn't before them, unless a certificate of appealability was issued. And there was no certificate of appealability
1: on that issue. We agree with that 100 so, percent. Was that
2: argued to, to the Sixth Circuit? Did you argue in the Sixth Circuit that uh, even assuming diligence that wasn't enough here and that's what the district court held?
1: I believe that is the position of the State of Michigan, that because he confessed to his friends both before and after.
2: But it was explicitly made to the Sixth Circuit.
1: I believe that the Sixth Circuit argument did focus on the question of, of diligence. Um, But, you know, our opinion would be that even if this Court would use, you know, what we call equitable abrogation to kind of wipe away the one-year limitations period, and and you would also disagree on diligence, and we don't think you should do that, that you would still reverse because there's nothing left to be done in the district court. This is not a case that rises to the very, very high threshold of proving actual innocence based on new evidence. Um, I would like to get back to the the statutory language.
3: Where does that leave us? Let's Uh, assume—
1: well, that, that leaves you with a reversal in any of those three instances. We think that you should address the circuit split, which is the important question of do we apply the limitations period. And, and to turn to that, what I would like to do is, is set up a, an analytical construct. A bit of
3: I, an advisory opinion, in your judgment.
1: Oh no, it wouldn't be an advisory opinion. It sure, would, it
3: would be because you're telling us that there's no proof of actual innocence.
1: I'm saying that's So why al- don't we just say no. that? I'm saying that's an alternative ground to get to the same place. But the Sixth Circuit's holding was consistent with some other circuits that there is no statute limitations here that you can get by with equitable abrogation, as we call it. It Might be
3: a holding, but as Justice Alito just proved, um, there's no basis for it because it didn't grant a COA on the substantive merits question.
1: Right, but I, I think you're wholly within your right to address the merits question, and, and I would like to turn to that. Um, The analytical construct I want to set up is that we've got three different categories of prisoners who claim actual innocence based on new evidence. In the first category, they use that new evidence only to try to establish innocence with no constitutional claim. And in Herrera, you say no federal habeas remedy for that. You have to go back to the state courts, executive clemency, prosecutorial discharging, of uh, verdicts and things like that. The second category is where you have a prisoner who uses new evidence as a gateway. It's not related to the constitutional claim that they assert, the, the true Schloop gateway. And that's not actually this case either, and you could reserve that question, um, although I'm happy to talk about that. The case we have here is the third instance where the evidence of actual innocence, the new evidence, is the factual predicate for the claim. And you could not find a provision more on all fours with that category than what Congress did in 2244 D1D. And we know that Congress was thinking about actual innocence and Schloop. For those of you who are, are interested in the context, Um, In the legislative debate in 95 and 96, before Edpa's enactment, we have Senators Feingold and Kennedy and Dodd, among others, talking about how this new statute is going to eliminate claims of actual innocence based on new evidence. In fact, Senator Feingold even mentions the Schloop decision, and yet Congress adopts 2244 D1D uh, and all the rest of the provisions by a, a 91 to 8 vote. So Congress had... This court's decision in Schloop, in the back of its mind, it considered this particular construct and it said, "No, we want a one-year limitations period." I do
4: want to. Your, po- your, th- your three-way classification you began with Herrera, correct? And in, in a way, you're saying that your, your three loops back in the Herrera a bit, because here the uh, innocence is the factual
1: predicate. Right, and in the Herrera case, there is no constitutional claim. So there is no factual predicate. It's just a stand-alone, I'm innocent claim. And, and this court has said, appropriately so, that the federal habeas remedy doesn't cover that. You know, if you think about the remedies you can get from state courts, from prosecutors, from executive clemency, it's a rather big circle. And EDPA is a much smaller circle that's subsumed in that. And and you recognize in Herrera that just because you don't fall within the habeas circle doesn't mean that you can't get relief. In fact, if you look at the examples that the amici brief cite on the respondent side, in almost every case, uh, the final decision is motivated by state action. There's a governor who uh, grants clemency in a couple cases. There's a state attorney general's office that dismisses charges in others. County prosecutors who do the same. One which the amicus brief characterizes as a habeas grant is actually the Illinois Court of Appeals um, in a state proceeding reversing. You know, what the — these are the best examples that they have for why you need an equitable abrogation rule. And yet in the vast majority of those cases, it's the state system that's solving the problem. Um, Now, I do want to go back to what I think is is the trickiest question, and that's, Justice Kennedy, the second category of prisoners, those who are using actual innocence to prove um, not their underlying constitutional claim, but simply the schloop gateway. And I would respectfully submit that even there, Congress has closed the door with 2244 D1D. And the best way to understand that is by looking two pro- sub-provisions earlier in the second and successive petitions category. And this argument that I'm going to make now is a little bit different than the way we, we did it in the brief, which was, you know, they had it there. They, they don't have it here. Um, if you look at 2244- 2244.
2: Before you uh, present the argument, yes. you are saying that Congress overruled is that what the point you're making?
1: Uh, the, the contextual point that I was making was that Congress knew about schloop. It was brought up in the debate that this was essentially changing the schloop rule and allowing someone who claims actual innocence not to present their claim, and Congress swept those objections aside by a 91 to 8 vote. To
3: successive petitions?
1: Uh, no, they were talking in the, the legislative record uh, just generally about actual innocence and claims of miscarriage of justice. Um, so, so the textual argument that I want to present involving successive petitions is that when you're looking at 2244, you flow from successive petitions down to the statute of limitations. What that means is that if you have a successive petition, Congress requires you to prove actual innocence and diligence And you still have to prove that you satisfy the statute of limitations. Uh, The Seventh Circuit recognized this in the Escamilla case. So what that means is that even when Congress had a situation where they knew that someone had presented evidence that would satisfy a heightened actual innocent standard, they still required that you satisfy the statute of limitations. Where, where, Where is that in the text? What are you relying on in the text of 2244? I'm relying on 2244B, which is the successive petition provision. It requires you to first prove that you've got evidence of actual innocence, and then also demonstrate that you have diligence. And after you've already gotten through what I'll call the actual innocence statutory gateway — you're still required to satisfy the statute of limitations. If Congress was concerned about Shaloup and wanted to make a situation where someone with evidence of actual innocence did not have to comply with the limitations period, they would have put an exception in the successive petition subprovision. And they didn't do that. You you don't have 2244B in your brief, do you? uh, Unfortunately, the text is not there, no. Uh, That is unfortunate. Yes. Well, as we explain in the briefs, the fact— If you're relying on it, I mean— Well, as we explained in the briefs, both parties rely on that. The fact that you have an actual innocence exception, only two sub-provisions earlier, is strong reason to think Congress didn't intend it here. But I'm making a a different argument now, which Mm is … I'm sorry, go ahead. uh, Which is simply that Congress considered the the instance where you've established a statutory actual innocence gateway in B2, a successive petition, Mm -hmm. and still required that it be timely filed, because the State's interest in having notice and an opportunity to investigate
4: is so important. But are, are, are you saying that uh, this case is a for sure right from a successive petition? Because this isn't a successive
1: petition. No, this is not. What I'm using the successive petition provision to demonstrate is that, consistent with the legislative history, Congress is demonstrating here in 2244 D1D that there is no special You don't see Well,
4: you're saying that Congress knows how to write an <laughs> <Yes, laughs> exception am if, if they want it. But this uh, uh, B does apply to successive petitions, and this is — really before that?
1: Well, my, my point is that if Congress anticipated that actual innocence could be a gateway to circumvent the limitations period, then certainly they would have put that exception in the successive petition, sub B2, where they said, all right, if you establish actual innocence, we're still going to make you comply with the limitations period.
0: Well, now, your friend on the other side, I think, argues that, that they put that in expressly because they limited what would be the otherwise applicable miscarriage of justice Provision in the question that's before us now.
1: Right. But what, is, was, what, is
0: your, what is your answer to that?
1: If he was right about that, then in B, you would also see another provision that says, and anyone who satisfies this statutory actual innocent standard doesn't have to comply with the limitations period. And we think that's that's dispositive. Now, you know, when we
3: I'm sorry, I don't understand. I mean, there is a presumption that's been long standing that at least with respect to the filing of your first petition, that it is a statute of limitations, subject to exceptions, including the Manifest injustice Justice one. It, it would seem to me that if they intended not to have that apply, they would have done what they did with the successive petition, but they chose not to.
1: Well, Actually, Justice Sotomayor, the, the history of this statute and of the case law isn't quite that way. Uh, and, and I want to draw a sharp distinction between this case and Holland with respect to history. With respect to equitable tolling, you did have decisions going back to the 1800s recognizing that federal statutes of limitations in all kinds of contexts, civil and criminal, were subject to equitable tolling. And so then in Irwin, six years before Edpa, uh, you actually create a presumption that if Congress doesn't specifically, um, you know, exclude, equitable I'm not tolling,
3: talking about that presumption. I'm right now, talking I'm talking about, to move to the about, about of cause justice. and effect and manifest yes.
1: injustice. So, so the cause and effect, the, the manifest injustice, the actual innocence, really starts to develop um, in 1986, and it it comes to fruition in Schloop in 1995, right before EdPES passed. Importantly, that exception was always applied to court-created procedural bars. Never once... To a Federal statute of limitations. And obviously, the separation of powers considerations are quite different when you're talking about a court-created exception to a court-created bar versus a bar that's enforced by Congress itself.
6: But you're and, creating a world in which um, this would function as an exception to a State time limit, but not to the EDPA time limit. That's Why does that make any sense?
1: Because it was the court itself that created the judicial exception to the state filing. And so then or I'm sorry, that created the bar with respect to the state filing. And so then it was completely within the Court's power to make an exception to that bar. But again here, the separation of powers, considerations, militate differently when you're talking about Congress doing the telling. And this Court has acknowledged in Launcher and Dodd and, and other places that Congress gets to set the parameters of habeas.
6: But I thought we said in Missouri v. Holland that EDPO was — draft was uh, enacted against a background rule which stated that normal equitable principles, such as this one, which had been applied everywhere to all procedural bars, that EDPA suggested that those would — that EDPA was against a background that those would continue to apply?
1: Well, it was a very short background, one with no Irwin-like presumption, and one that, again, had never, ever been applied to a Federal statute of limitations. Well, why
6: is a Federal statute of limitations any different?
1: Uh, because it's Congress. And Congress is the one that's handcuffing the Court with respect to
6: this — MS. Yes, but it's again, it's Congress. Question. But we said in, in Holland that it's Congress, and EDPA has, has — uh, has, was — was drafted against this presumption that normal equitable principles would apply.
1: But here's another way to think about it. You know, if you imagine the, the template that you have on your Microsoft uh, Word uh, when you're doing a, a document, an opinion, whatever, you've got certain stuff that's on the template. And you said in Irwin that when it comes to equitable tolling, you've always got a subprovision Z, call it, in every federal statute of limitations that appears on that template. And so Congress has to do something affirmatively to strike that out. Because the miscarriage of justice exception had never been applied to any federal, federal statute of limitations, there wasn't a miscarriage of justice exception sitting on the template. Congress was writing from scratch. But,
6: again, why would Congress have thought that there would be any difference in — with respect to a statute of limitations?
1: Um, well, the, the biggest reason is because of the state interest in notice and investigating the evidence. When you're talking about the typical schloop — But claim, that applies to states as well. Well, no, there, there you have stale claims, but you don't have stale evidence. And, you know, we — We don't have any problem with litigating a claim that could have been litigated earlier, and is going to be litigated now. But the world of evidence, the record that supports the claim, is already defined and is not going to change. The world we're dealing with in 2244 D1D is when new stuff has come forward, and if that new stuff sits in the jailhouse cell, for 10, 20, 30 years, and we don't have an opportunity to talk to those witnesses, to do counter investigation, then not only are we prejudiced with respect to delay and finality and things like that, but we're prejudiced with respect to the merits determination of what that evidence means. And when I talked about my three constructs, you know, this case here, where you're using the old evidence to establish the underlying claim, th- that's really the, the position where the state is in the worst possible position, because now you've got a, you know, dry-cleaning clerk affidavit, a 10-year-old affidavit, we can't possibly cross-examine her, and yet not only is that their gateway, that's their substantive merits claim about why there is ineffective assistance of counsel.
2: Why so, can't you cross-examine her? Is it just because — the lapse of time and she won't remember?
1: It will be very difficult. And, and there are some examples in the amici briefs, uh, of the New York case, uh, for example, where witnesses were completely unavailable. They had died or one was out of state and because of mental infirmities could not travel. You know, we, we all know that as time passes, evidence deteriorates. Um, whether it's because of of death or illness or simply forgetfulness. Um, I I certainly can't remember what I was doing 10 years ago today. Um, And the affidavit that she submitted was quite short. And and that one affidavit is just a microcosm of the problem when you don't come forward immediately with evidence. Um, One other point that I want to make, uh, really, on on the equities here, because we're spending a lot of time Do you have any
3: idea how many actual innocent claims win? Uh, on the underlying constitutional issue.
1: Right. The, the number that win is small. But what this case demonstrates is that the number where it's claimed is very high. In fact, in Michigan, uh, you know, where we deal with procedural default every day, somewhere between a third and a half of our petitioners claim actual innocence so that they can use Schloop to get past the, the failure to prove cause and win prejudice.
3: On the attempt.
1: Um, well, in the Sixth Circuit, a little more than in some other circuits, um, but, but but generally not very many. Not many. You know, and, but, but this case is the perfect example. When you cut the court loose from the statutory requirement, you end up with what Justice Alito was describing, you know, a situation where no one thinks that Mr. Perkins is actually innocent based on this new evidence. At best, it proves that he had a co-conspirator who helped him commit the murder together. And yet now we've got this Sixth Circuit order, which reportedly sends us back to the trial court to do who knows what? I mean, how do you prove that he's not innocent? Well, a jury already did that. You know, the the jury heard all the evidence. They had a presumption of innocence. Um, All the constitutional rules that should have been were applied to that trial. And the jury said he's guilty, and there's not a presumption of innocence anymore. And and, and the, the equitable point that I wanted to touch on is that this is not just about prejudicing the state's interest. If you allow claims like these to go forward, it also prejudices those who have legitimate claims of actual innocence, the needle in the haystack. And Justices O'Connor and Kennedy, in their Herrera concurrence, uh, talked about the haystack problem, that when you keep adding hay to that pile, not only is it harder to find the needle, the truly meritorious claim, but at some point the federal judges just give up and they stop looking. Why
3: why is it that the meritorious claim— is going to be the one that's going to be hidden? Because there's so uh, many.
1: It's important to understand that, that notwithstanding the limits that Congress was trying to put on these habeas petitions when it enacted EDPA, that we actually have more habeas filings on an annual basis today than we did before EDPA was enacted. Uh, That's not going to stop the filing. This is just one small rule to cut the haystack down a little bit and make it that much easier to find the needle. And if you can find that occasional needle, and we, we submit there's not a lot of those, Federal judges are going to be more inclined to. But you, would
3: to look want, those you want to keep it out altogether?
1: No. You want
3: an actually, potentially, actually innocent person.
1: No, that not is not our position. Have. And I want to be really clear about this. First, they've got the year. But if they go past a year, they've got the state system. And what the examples in the Amici briefs demonstrate is that.
3: But they don't the, have the federal system. No, they don't. As a first habeas.
1: But but as the the Alabama Amici brief explains, every state has got a process for um, hearing these claims, no matter how old they are. You've also got the the prosecutors who look at these, and they don't want to keep innocent people (coughs) in jail. And, And then lastly, you've got clemency, which this court has always recognized as the remedy for those who assert true actual innocence but have no constitutional violation to assert. Unless there are further questions, I would like to reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Riedler.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to start with Justice Kagan's question regarding the important background uh, interpretive principle here that's set out — set out in Holland. There the Court held that longstanding equitable rules in the habeas context are incorporated into EDPA, barring a clear command by Congress to the contrary. And the longstanding miscarriage of justice exception has had a well-settled meaning. It has allowed uh, petitioners who can meet the high standard of showing actual innocence a procedural gateway around uh, a procedural bar to allow them to present their otherwise barred constitutional claims in federal court. Before Just you say, proceed
2: with that, can you address Justice Alito's point that the district court said there's no merit to this. It's not an actual innocence, it's not a valid actual innocence claim. And then the Sixth Circuit sends it back for the district court to decide something that's already decided. How do you overcome that the, the Sixth Circuit never reviewed the actual innocence question. The District Court did and said this doesn't make it.
7: No, that's that's <laughs> correct, Justice Ginsburg. And with respect to Justice Alito's question, uh, the report and recommendation from the magistrate uh, denied this petition on statute of limitations grounds solely. It said it was too late and it missed the statute, statutory period. Uh, At the District Court level, the Court held that uh, the statute of limitations was missed and that there was no diligence. The Court believed there was a diligence requirement, and said the petition failed for that reason. And then, as Justice Alito noted, the the Court added some other language which said — was not a weighing of the evidence, but the Court said that it felt that the evidence was not new in the sense that it was reasonably — potentially reasonably known at the the time of trial, which I think is — is — is one — was one, the wrong legal standard, but two, was a misinterpretation of Schlupp, because Schlupp allows you to consider all the evidence old and new. And I don't think that's what the District district Court, I think, applied the wrong legal standard. So it wasn't actually getting to the merits. It didn't sort of set out all the evidence and weigh them. And then, Justice Ginsburg, you're correct that this was not part of the certificate appealability. The certificate appealability was limited on the narrow question of whether there's a diligence requirement. That factual issue was not before the Sixth Circuit. It hasn't — it's not before this Court as well. And what I think this Court should do is what it did in Schlupp, which is it announced the standard that would apply, and then it remanded the case back to the District Court uh, for application of the correct
5: standard. Well, I don't understand that. The District Court — you seem to suggest the District Court was wrong in saying that there wasn't sufficient evidence for an actual innocence claim. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it was wrong. But if it decided that issue and the issue wasn't appealed, then the issue is settled. And that's the problem that I see. Now, how do you get around right. that? Just, just I
7: I don't I — don't, I, don't I don't read the District Court as actually getting to the merits. I think it applied a wrong legal rule and said I can't even consider the evidence because it's not new evidence. I think that was an erroneous interpretation. Under Schlopp, the, the Court has said many times that, that the Court can consider all the evidence old and new. And I think that case re- really turns on the, the equitable tolling.
5: Did you ask for a certificate of — what other issues did you ask for a certificate of appealability on?
7: Well, our, our client was
5: acting pro se. What, what other issues did he ask for a certificate?
7: Uh, you know, just so I don't I don't have that in front of me. I don't, I don't recall the full contours of, of what he requested. The, the, certific- the Sixth Circuit uh, granted it on, on the one — narrow issue whether diligence was a requirement
0: counsel um, you, you say on page seventeen of your brief that this court has applied the manifest injustice exception to limits created by Congress what 's your best case for that
7: yeah, ab- absolutely, Mr. Chief Justice. those cases are on pages thirty six to thirty eight of the red brief, and I think my friend and I have a dis- disagreement here it 's true that the the uh, Rule has never been applied to the statute of limitations because there was no statute of limitations for EDPA before the statute.
0: But the Court has applied the exception to acts of Congress. It did so in Sanders. No, no, what, what do you mean, acts of Congress? Your sentence says applied it to limits created by Congress. I read that to mean statutes of limitations, but that's wrong? Uh,
7: Mr. Chief Justice, that, that's
0: that, that's incorrect
7: in the sense that there was no federal statute of limitations uh, before EDPA. But the Court had applied the miscarriage of justice exception two acts of Congress. So, for instance, in Sanders, uh, the, the uh, Congress had included in 2244 an ends of justice provision, which seemed to allow the Court to consider the ends of justice when uh, considering whether to hear a successive petition, uh, which is essentially the equivalent of miscarriage of justice. It did not include that language in 2255, and yet the Court read 2255 as also including the ends of
0: justice requirement, hence a miscarriage
7: of justice, even though the language wasn't there.
0: In Kuhlman but with … 2255. Remind me. For
7: federal federal petitions.
0: And said what with respect to federal convictions. Said what with respect to the time limits.
7: There there was was language in, in in both statutes regarding when you could bring a successive petition. The the statute that applied to uh, uh, petitions out of, out of uh, State judgment, 2254, included an ends of justice provision, which said the Court could consider the ends of justice in deciding whether to uh, take a second or successive so, petition.
0: So when you said — Limits. You didn't mean time limits. You meant substantive limits. Substance. Well, well no, procedural limits. Procedural limits procedural, limits. procedural limits. Do you have a case that applies it to time limits, which, of course, is the question we have here?
7: We we, we do uh, in in uh, words, it would be state time limits, uh, but right. Well,
0: you said it limits created by Congress. So just I mean I should read limits created by Congress, not to mean time limits, but procedural or other limits.
7: Well, Mr. Chief Justice, there have never been any time limits. Uh, right. Since. I guess
0: that's my — the point of my questioning and, and your friend's position. There have never been any time limits created by Congress that have been a- abrogated by a manifest injustice exception.
7: I, I, I think I can agree with that, because there was never a statute limitations before EDBA. But, right.
0: But, but. And, that, and the difference is, with, in Holland, we're dealing with equitable tolling, which had applied as far back as, you know, whatever the law goes, to limitations. In other words, equitable tolling, which is different from the abrogation, I think, that you're asking for?
7: Well, I don't think so, Mr. Chief Justice. Two responses. First, with respect to the timing issue, the Court had applied uh, the miscarriage of justice exception to abusive petitions. So there's a timing concern invoked there because you're filing a second petition when you could have raised issues earlier, and the Court has said even in that timing context, not a statute of limitations, but it certainly invokes timing concerns that even in in, in that instance the the miscarriage of justice would still overcome
5: the rule. you're asking for what is potentially — a very big exception to the one year statute of limitations. If you took a poll of all of the prisoners in Michigan, how many of them do you think would say they're actually innocent?
7: Well, Justice Lee, I suspect very few of them could credibly say. Very few
5: would say they're actually it. innocent?
7: Well, I haven't done that study. I suspect very few of them would say that they're credibly say that they're actually innocent. Oh,
5: credibly say. But how many would say that they're actually innocent? A lot. And, and a lot would be able to come up with evidence that 's equal to to what uh, what the petition what, what the respondent here has has come up with now do you think it's it 's plausible that Congress, in establishing this new one year statute of limitations because it doesn 't want these things to drag on indefinitely, intended to create an exception that broad so that anybody who claims to be actually innocent can at least get over? It can get to the point where the court has to decide whether the evid- has to weigh this evidence of actual innocence to see whether it, it gets over the threshold. Sure. Is that plausible in, given what Congress was trying to do in Edgar?
7: Ab- absolutely, Justice Leto, for, for two reasons. First of all, the, the background presumption, of course, given the established nature of this exception. Uh, and back to Mr. Chief Justice's question, while uh, uh, this exception, as compared to equitable tolling in a criminal context, I think is actually more important because it goes to the ultimate equity, and that is innocence. But the background presumption is that Congress includes these foundational equitable rules of which the miscarriage of justice exception is absolutely one of them, unless Congress expressly says otherwise. Now, Justice Alito, no, no petitioner is going to want to find themselves in the schluck world where they have missed the statute of limitations. It's not a place they're going to want to be. They're going to absolutely want to file within a year if they can. Sometimes they miss that that period. And what the Court has said in those rare circumstances where you can make a credible, compelling showing of actual innocence, we will allow you to around the uh, statute of limitations. But no petitioner wants to be in that circumstance because the schluck well, standard if, is so high.
4: I,
0: I, just to, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, they don't want to definitely file within one year if they don't have anything to say. Uh, you know, if it takes a certain amount of time before they either acquire it legitimately or can find somebody or, I don't know, in this case, you know, the, the uh, uh, co-defendant dies, uh, everybody has no reason anymore to, you know, object and pin it on him. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that it's in some of these prisoners' interest to drag things out and then to file they don't have anything to say within the one year and need time to either, from your point of view, legitimately develop the evidence, or from your friend's point of view, concoct it.
7: Well, and the, and the statute speaks to that. I and mean, I think we do have a disagreement on an interpretation of the statute, but Section 2244 D1D does speak to the discovery of new evidence, which goes to support a claim. I think Congress and — And
2: the statute limitations would run from the discovery of, of the new evidence, not from
7: that's, that's, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg, to the extent that the evidence goes to support a claim. Congress included a typical discovery rule. If you discover new evidence that, that supports the uh, factual uh, underpinnings of your claim, that starts the one-year period over again. But critically — and we, I think my friend and I have a disagreement here — critically, with respect to that provision, if you find evidence that solely goes to your innocence, that provision is not triggered, meaning you don't get another year if you find uh, completely exculpatory evidence that shows you're not innocent. You don't don't necessarily get another year, and there's a uh, hypothetical I can give you. If your underlying claim is a Batson claim, a structural error claim, and you fail to raise it and you miss the one-year limitations period, but then ten years later you find DNA evidence that completely exonerates your client that was unknown to anyone, so it's not the basis for an IAC claim, it's not the basis for prosecutorial misconduct, in that instance the statute doesn't start the limitations period over. You're entirely out of luck which is why Congress had to have meant to include the absolute — the innocence exception for just that kind of case, so that that petitioner at least has the ability to to, uh, try to meet the Schlepp standard.
5: But that's very odd, because if if you have somebody who's actually innocent, then you're saying that person can't get out of prison unless the person happens to have a good constitutional claim uh, that's totally unrelated to the fact that the person is actually innocent. This is very odd, isn't it? Well, I don't
7: think so, Justice Lito, in the sense that all this is, is a gateway to allow them their first opportunity to bring a federal habeas petition. Ordinarily, they are out of luck, but if they brought evidence that is so compelling that shows that there may well have been a miscarriage of justice because this person has shown under the substance that they are actually innocent, that in that instance, the court has always said that we are going to allow those claims to be heard, at least in the first instance, by a, by a federal court for a first petition.
0: Your friend responds to that point, I think, by saying that every state allows collateral. Uh, review in that instance, and that what we are talking about is simply preclusion of the second bite at the apple or third bite at the apple, I guess, uh, uh, by, by assumption, in the Federal system.
7: Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I am not sure that is correct to the extent that we have already raised our underlying constitutional claims in State Court. Those have been exhausted. So the Michigan rule, as I read it, doesn't allow us to go back to State Court and present our constitutional claims again. They have already been adjudicated. What
0: about the actual innocence claim?
7: The innocence evidence may you may be able to pursue that under under the under the under the state rule but that is more akin to a freeze is that
0: standing. the most is that the most I thought I understood your friend to say and he can correct me if i 'm wrong that every state has an avenue for considering that
7: well two responses one I think every state has different rules and so this the, the application of the ex- exception has never turned on sort of what the alternative Potential state rule is that wasn't that was true in House and, in, and true in Schlupp, where there were state alternatives. But two, those state alternatives go to freestanding innocence claims, where you're not you're not alleging that there's an underlying constitutional violation. What you're saying is basically sim- similar to Herrera, and that is that I have evidence that shows, setting aside any error with the trial and no errors, I have evidence that shows I'm innocent. That's a completely different concept. And what we're getting at here is the case where you one have evidence of innocence and two have a constitutionally corrupt trial, or at least an allegation of a constitutionally corrupt trial.
5: Well, assuming for the sake of argument that there is this exception, why shouldn't diligence be required? How can it be equitable to allow someone to bring a claim when the person has — involving new evidence when the person has not been diligent in presenting this new evidence to the Court?
7: Well, Justice Alito, for, for decades this Court has never required diligence, and in fact McCleskey has expressly rejected it. And the Court has noted that diligence has not historically been required under the standard because, as the Court said in House and in Calderon, the, the Congress raised the bar in two places in the statute. But the reason why is because, as Justice O'Connor said in her concurring opinion uh, with, with — uh, with, in Withrow with uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, that innocence is the ultimate equity. And it trumps uh, — diligence is not the ultimate equity, it's innocence. And if, if a petitioner can come forward and make a credible showing of actual innocence, that standing alone has always been enough to allow a federal court to at least go ahead and then reach the underlying claim. You have, a so larger, is-
2: you have a larger category, you say, miscarriage of justice. So one is actual innocence. You say the, the category is well-defined. So what else would fit under this? And we can bring it up very late in the, in the day. Anything else other than actual innocence would be in this category of Mrs. Justice Ginsburg.
7: Ginsburg, I think the Court has always treated the phrase miscarriage of justice as synonymous with actual innocence, and that's that's the one thing it's, it's getting at. It's, it's a narrow exception, uh, difficult to meet, but but it's always included uh, cases where you can make a a, bri- a bribed
4: juror is not a miscarriage of justice? I'm sorry, Justice A juror God? who's bribed, there's no, no miscarriage of justice there? Well,
7: that, that would— Presumably, be the basis for a, a habeas claim.
4: Well, we're talking about the meaning of the term miscarriage of justice. It, it seems to me there, there, there are many serious errors that can be described by that general phrase. Well, just, I uh, you I'm, want to I'm, say I'm, it's a term of art? Fine.
7: Just, Kenny, I'm relying on, on the court's decades of decisions, many of which uh, you've, you've written in this area, where they've described miscarriage of justice in the habeas setting as the equivalent of incarceration of an innocent person, and that's what the exception is, is getting at.
8: So, is this boiled down? To, I mean, you have a one-year statute of limitations. Now, I guess suppose Hurricane Katrina came along and threw all the documents away for two months. I guess the court could extend it, couldn't it? Uh,
7: well, that, would, that could be a, uh, viewed as an impediment uh, under, the, under the statute. There's a statutory provision for. Yeah, I
8: mean, don't they toll it when there's some when the courthouse burns down?
7: It could be also a basis for equitable tolling. Correct.
8: All right, so. You want to say, and that's also true when the person is actually innocent. If you can prove that, delay it. Is that what you're saying?
7: Uh, I'm not sure if I fully understand the question. Well, you
8: said we it says one year and it gives four criteria. And the four criteria sometimes are not exclusive. And you want to say yours is one of the times. That's, that's, that's true. They're not, they're not exclusive. And a — And a different one, you say, is when he's actually innocent. That's, 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 that's correct. All right. If that's correct, then suppose that he purposely has delayed filing this until everybody's dead, so they know they can't prove it anymore.
7: Well, then that raises a
8: whole — Well, what is your d- answer? — different range of — All right. Can he toll it under those circumstances?
7: Well, the — any the, — as the Court said in Schlup, the timing of the submission by the petitioner can certainly be considered in the Schlupp analysis.
8: So, so the I, answer is, in your view, if he deliberately and and without cause delays it for five years, his filing, just so everybody will die, you would say, okay, I, I'm not worried about him?
7: Well, Justice Breyer, I is would Is that say, right? Would uh, you or would I you would say you? that — I would say that he can still — Attempt to avail himself of the settled miscarriage of justice exception, but the huge problem he's going to run. Does is he win he, or lose? He, he likely he, he may well. I mean, lose. what do you think? He, he may well lose at the schlup stage. I
8: didn't ask that. I said, what do you think?
7: Uh, well, I don't. I don't have all the facts. I suspect he's going to lose. Yes, you do.
8: I made up the hypothetical. <laughs>
7: Well, just on, on, on those facts, I'm going to say he loses at the Schlup stage, because at, at Schlup which is, one, an incredibly high bar to meet, but, two, the Court expressly said at page 322 of the opinion that it can consider the timing of the evidence when it's submitted. So it, it already takes into account any sort of game-playing that a petitioner may engage in when they're trying to assert their, their innocence. And how
8: long did ad- your — I'm just trying to — they admit that if he's diligent, it's okay. The state? Yeah. Well, the state's You mean a- he's diligent?
7: St- I, we believe he's diligent. The State's asking for a diligence requirement that the Court has never no, The fulfilled. State's
8: asking for a diligence requirement. You admit that there's a requirement that, that uh, uh, you have to uh, not really use this as a sham and device. So we're pretty close.
7: I, 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 there's never, there's never been a diligence requirement in, in this setting because that's not been the, the focus. But there, but there is actually, a sham
8: and there is a sham and, and deliberate delay requirement. Well, not a diligence one, but there is a sham. And, I'm not there, trying there, to there, trick just, you, no, but just, I'm trying to say is maybe we're arguing about something that we could solve. That is, in fact, many of these people don't have lawyers. They don't understand the statute of limitations. They don't understand what diligence might be consist of. Looking later, you agree that it's shouldn't be a sham. Shouldn't do it deliberately. All right. Now, if I'm thinking about that, how would you advise me to write it?
7: I, I think — I think the Court can just build on the principles it's already set forward in Schlupp in other places, and that is that there's never been a diligence requirement in this setting. And Congress, by the way, did not, the intent of Congress was not to include a diligence requirement here because in two places it did include a a, a diligence requirement with respect to successive petitions or evidentiary hearings. So the congressional intent was not to include diligence. But But there has always
3: uh, been a um, latchings defense until Rule 9A was rescinded.
7: That's correct, Justice Sutton All
3: right. So there's been some form, not of due diligence, but some form of check on a prisoner waiting so long that a state can't respond, um, the Justice Breyer's hypothetical. That's so he's asking you, I think, to tell us how to write it. So do we write it by saying there's no diligence requirement, but there is a sort of common law latches, although that's hard argument to make because it was based on 9A until recently, or do we just say … Its equity and equity would suggest that if it's contrived, the delay is contrived, that the evidence is suspect and doesn't and shouldn't be credited?
7: Absolutely. Two responses. First, just with respect to Rule 9A, uh, Chief Justice Berger, in a concurring opinion to a dissent in Spalding, said that even the latchie's rule would give way if there was a colorable showing of actual innocence. With respect to the rule I'd write, I would write the, the rule that's essentially already in place, and that is that the miscarriage of justice exception does not turn on diligence. It turns on whether you can show innocence. And in — in attempting to show innocence under Schlupp — This timing — the timing of the submissions is a consideration. So if there's — if there's been a delay that somehow uh, hurts the State uh, because a witness has died, or it appears to be that that's the fault or that that the uh, petitioner was playing games in that context, I think that's a fair consideration
0: under Schlupp. So that's established after — after after some kind of evidentiary hearing, the delay — whether he delayed for a particular purpose or not?
7: Well, it, de- it depends. If, if, if the petition is filed three weeks after the star witness dies, uh, presumably the State will come back in their petition and note, one, all the evidence that they think goes against uh, the uh, petitioner's yes. claim. But also they'll note that this happened, and the Court could resolve it at that stage, too. Why,
0: why did your client wait five years after the last affidavit?
7: Well, a number of reasons, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. One, he was looking for counsel to assist him. Uh, two, he continued to look for evidence. Uh, three, he didn't have access to his legal papers. Many of his legal papers were lost in a — in a prison riot and then a flood that occurred at this prison. So he didn't have access to those and had to regain those. Uh, for a period of time, he was denied access to the library and to a legal writer. So there were a culmination of reasons why uh, he didn't do this. But I think, two of the critical ones were looking for counsel and uh, trying to develop more evidence.
5: Well, as your — as your adversary says, there's nothing really procedurally complicated about filing a federal habeas. There are their forms. I've read hundreds of them that have been filed by pro se petitioners, and there's nothing technical about claiming I'm innocent of this offense. This is an illegal issue. It's something anybody can understand. I've got affidavit. I got my sister's affidavit. I have an affidavit by a third person. I have an affidavit by uh, by a person who worked in a dry cleaning shop. It shows that I'm actually innocent. Why doesn't what, what is the reason for waiting five years to file that? Well, Justice Leo, you know, no, no rational petitioner is going to want to wait in that period
7: because if they file within the one year period, they go straight to review on their habeas claims and they don't have to worry about any procedural
5: gateway. So, so no rational. I, I don't understand your answer about why it took him five years from, the, from, the, from obtaining the last affidavit to the filing of the federal habeas. You said he couldn't get a lawyer. He really didn't need a lawyer to do this, he didn't have access to a library. This isn't a legal issue is isn't a complicated legal issue. It's a factual issue that anybody who watches detective shows on TV can understand.
7: Well, and Justice Lito, you're right. We're not arguing for equitable tolling here in the sense that he could have filed earlier. There wasn't, there wasn't a state impediment that stood in his way. The entire period of time, and he should have filed it earlier. And had he filed earlier, then he would have gone straight to consideration of his underlying habeas claims, and wouldn't have to worry about this high hurdle of
5: satisfying. But you think that Congress, which in EDPA was trying to speed all this up and get rid of the delay and make things simpler, intended to allow that? You could wait five years. You could wait ten years. You could wait fifteen years. It doesn't matter. Well, uh, that's what EDPA was intended to do. Well, no, Justice, you're correct that EDPA was intended to, to delay or to
7: end delay when possible. But as the Court said in Holland, uh, Edpo is not meant to, to end every delay at all costs. And I think this is exactly the situation they had in mind. In Calderon, the Court recognized that the miscarriage of justice exception is consistent with Edpo because because it arises so rarely that in the vast majority of cases the finality and comedy concerns that the State has are honored because there's, there's, no, there's no additional uh, proceeding. Uh, the, the petitioner will not meet the high Schlupp standard and the case will end. But in the rare case where a petitioner can satisfy Schlupp, The Court has always said that the courthouse doors in that circumstance will be open to review of your first Federal petition.
2: The Second Circuit, when it had a similar case, the Second Circuit itself said actual innocence is rare. This is such a case, this is a case where the alibi that he had was, it was established by forensic evidence, airtight, he was someplace else. The, the Second Circuit didn't send it to the District Court to decide the actual innocence. It decided that itself and then said, District Court, now you deal with the, with the uh, questions that the, the petition is raising, the constitutional questions. But the Sixth Circuit just seemed to be it, — it didn't matter whether — it didn't matter whether the actual innocence claim had any solid basis. Then they sent it back to the district court. It's, it shouldn't, if there is an actual innocence um, gateway, shouldn't the Court of Appeals determine that before it returns the case to the district court?
7: I, I think ordinarily, yes. Uh, the Sixth Circuit said here that there was a gateway, and it was remaining the case back to the district court. Yes, and, but it
2: didn't find that — anything about whether this was this claim was was a good one
7: that's that's correct that's correct everybody. and
2: i'm still puzzled about what happens next the case goes back to the district court and the, the district court is told diligence doesn't matter the district court said yes but i thought i thought that the claim was worthless
7: well, it's, it's correct that the case should be ran, remanded back to the district court, just like this case — but just like the court did in Schlup, where it announced the standard and remanded back to the district court for application. But here I, I disagree with that reading of the underlying opinion in that the court doesn't set out and sort of weighing all the evidence and saying here's what I find in favor of the petitioner and here's what I find in favor of the state. What the uh, district court said is that it disca- — it said the timing of the evidence w- was somehow a problem because the information was known at trial. Uh, and which I think is, again, wrong for two reasons. I think the petitioner has — is able to use the information because the problem, of course, was his attorney was told about some of these things but didn't actually assert them or didn't interview one of the key witnesses. One of the affiants was on the prosecution's witness list, and my client's lawyer didn't even interview that person, let alone call them. And then the court I — think, I think the court — the trial court has misunderstood Schlopp because Schlopp allows you to consider all the evidence, old and new, make appropriate credibility determinations, consider the timing of the, of the evidence, and determine whether that standard has been met. And I think that's what should happen here for the, for the for the first for the first time in our view. And, and there was a question there was a question earlier with, with, with respect to how often the Schlup standard is met. In, re, in response to the reply brief, we did a search of the circuit courts, and we found since Schlupp was decided, eight circuits that have uh, upheld or have found that Schlupp was satisfied. If you add in-house, and that adds nine appellate cases where Schlupp was satisfied. So it's a, it's a it's a narrow range of cases. It shouldn't be difficult to meet. But we
0: well, but I mean the whole question and your friend made the made the point. The question is how many are filed, and how many cases does the claim arise? not how few times it's um, upheld. Sure.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, I suspect no matter the rules, there will always be filings by petitioners, and many of those may be frivolous. But as the Court has said in Panetti and other cases, you know, unmeritorious petitions can be dismissed at the the earliest course, and that's consistent with habeas rule four. That's what should happen in this instance,
0: too. But it's often — Well, how do you know which of these are meritorious and which aren't? Is this a meritor? I assume you think this is a meritorious one.
6: <laughs> we,
0: we, we do, and yet justice. Uh, and your friend says nobody can reasonably think this person is innocent. Maybe he has constitutional claims, but if you look at the evidence, uh, is this something at the uh, preliminary stage? You look and say, "Oh, this guy's clearly innocent." This goes forward, or is it one that you can cast aside?
7: I don't think it's one you can cast aside. I think you have to give this more development. And by the way, he was proceeding pro se. I think when he's when the case is remanded with assistance of counsel, he can present better present the evidence and present some other things uh, to make make the showing stronger. And I think we can meet the Schlopp standard. If there are no further questions, we'd ask that the Sixth Circuit be affirmed.
0: Thank you, counsel, Mr. Birch, You have four minutes remaining.
1: Three brief points about Holland and uh, some closing thoughts about diligence. Um, With respect to Holland, I I want to note, first of all, that there you were dealing with legislative silence. Everyone agreed that Congress had not said anything about equitable tolling. And and as I explained earlier, when you consider the three categories of defendants who um, claim actual innocence based on new evidence, this situation here, where the new evidence relates to the factual predicate of the constitutional claim asserted, that's where Congress most clearly meant to have the limitations period apply. So it's very different. With respect to equitable tolling applying to acts of Congress, everyone recognizes that. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, you note that this has never been applied to limitations. I actually have to, to take issue with my friend's statement that Sanders and Kuhlman... Um, somehow took a different tack, because in both of those cases, um, what Congress did is it left it to the district court judge's discretion to do or not do something. And all this court said was, well, if they've got discretion, then they can still have an equitable exception. So even in those cases, uh, this miscarriage of justice exception has never, ever been used to override a congressional act. Uh, The last thing is that in equitable tolling, you are dealing with the fault of the petitioner. Hurricane Katrina or something else happened that wasn't their fault. And here, it's entirely within the petitioner's control. All they have to do is print the form, check the boxes, attach the evidence, and then file the claim. And they have an unlimited time to find evidence, and then one year after that to file. Now, with respect to, to General, diligence— you
6: had suggested earlier some uh, way out of this puzzle about why Congress would have put the actual innocence exception into the second and successive uh, petition provision and not had one for first petition. Petitions? Yes. So that seems really quite odd to me. I mean, a number of uh, my colleagues have said, well, can we really believe that Congress contemplated this? But, I mean, don't we have evidence that Congress contemplated it in the second and successive context, a slightly tighter version? Wouldn't it be quite odd to say that Congress contemplated an actual innocence exception when you're on your second petition, but board it when you are on your first. What sense would that
1: make? Yeah, let me explain that, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that, because, you know, besides the legislative history that informs what we're looking at here, what they did in 2244 D1D is they made it broader. They said, even if you don't claim innocence, if you're coming forward with new evidence, we want the court to hear that constitutional claim if you bring it within one year. The reason they didn't mention it there is because it would have made the provision narrower, and they didn't want to do that then they ratcheted it up with respect to successive petitions, making you pass through the successive petition actual innocence gateway and then comply with the limitations period. So that's the explanation consistent with the legislative history.
6: Well, I guess I'm just not sure I understand that. I mean, they could have added a separate provision, just saying there's a, you know, an actual innocence exception or there's, there's, there's not consistent with the way they did it in, this, in the second and successive petition.
1: Right, they could have, but again, that would have limited D1D. Well,
6: it didn't have to. Why would it necessarily have limited D one D?
1: Well, if if they said there's an exception for those who claim actual innocence, the implication is for those who don't claim actual innocence, um, you're out of luck.
6: Well, you just make the converse clear.
1: Well, <laughs> if we could rewrite congressional statutes with hindsight, you know, maybe we could draft. A All I'm suggesting statute. is that
6: your interpretation of the statute creates a glaring anomaly that people would be out of court on the first petition, then they could turn around on their second petition, which is usually disfavored, and get an actual innocence exception.
1: No, that's not the way that we interpret this at all. Under either provision, you're stuck with D-1-D. You've got to file within a year. All that the successive petition adds to it is that you do have a statutory actual innocence gateway to pass through first that you don't have on your first petition. That's our position. I I, I do want to close with some thoughts about diligence. you know, looking for counsel, we, we've talked about how simple it is to, to file these things. Um, the papers lost in the, the prison riot and the access to the, the library are related, uh, and it's because Defendant Perkins incited the prison riot. Um, so he's hardly in an equitable position of, of claiming any tolling benefit from that. And, and with respect to the the rule, um, Justice Breyer, um, we can't have a diligence rule, if you go to that point, based on intent um, because the interest that's being vindicated here is not the purpose of the petitioner and
8: you, What do you think about the words discovered and exercise of due diligence? You know, you could manipulate those words so as to deal with the circumstance of the, say, below average IQ person who doesn't have a lawyer, who isn't certain about what to do, and uh, what counts as diligence and discovery in that case? And is that, are you objecting to that? You object to answer. that? What that, do you think? Sure. Briefly?
1: Um, you know, as long as it takes into account that the State's interest in timeliness is at its apex when we're dealing with new evidence that relates to the actual constitutional claim. And, and they're asking for not equitable tolling, but extraordinary tolling that you should reject.
0: Thank you, Thank you counsel. Case is submitted.